Romans. Let me just start by saying, I would not want to debate Paul. The Apostle Paul, you know, before his conversion was Saul. Saul was a man who was raised in the Jewish teachings and traditions, and by the time he was a young adult, would be sent off to receive even more strict, harder teachings. When he received his teachings under his teacher, for the next handful of years, he would then learn how to master Jewish, Jewish history, psalms, works of the prophets, and how to dissect scripture. And he would develop his sort of question and answer style of teaching that I love him for. Saul would become a lawyer, a person who has learned and interpreted and taught the law. And because of this, he would go down a path that would eventually make him a religious extremist. Saul would be part of the great persecution that would break out against the church, believing he was doing the Lord's work. He would hunt down those that he considered to be against him. And this rage, this hatred, whatever you want to call it, sort of took over him. According to Acts 8.3, he made havoc of the church, entering into every home and hauling men and women, committing them to prison. Now, as much of a monster Paul was, and he was a murdering monster, God still reached down and saved him because God can save anyone, amen? But my point is that Paul was somebody who devoted his life to the knowledge of scriptures, knowing the laws, everything that they taught. He was able to use this to persecute those who opposed him, and now he's a Christian. I believe that he still had that same zeal and that he loved God's word even more, so this was a man who knew the scriptures and what they meant, and after having his, his encounter with Christ and having the love of his word, I can't imagine the type of Christian he must have been. I mean, he, he had to have been some sort of like apologetic master on steroids. This is why I said I would not want to debate Paul. He, was, he had a way of revealing the folly in, in terrible arguments and claims. And when he heard them, he would address them right on the spot with just foolproof arguments. Paul's my guy. I love his approach and his teaching methods. He's been addressing some great stuff so far here in Romans in the series that Brian has been leading you through for the past few months. And today we're going to continue in chapter 7. If you guys want to follow along, we'll only be going uh, over verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> Before we do that, I kind of want to refresh um, our minds on chapter 6. Chapter 6, Paul states that we are now dead to sin and that we are free from it. And since we are free from it, we should not keep doing it. An argument against this was, well, can't we just keep on sinning since we're free? And sinning would make God's grace bigger, therefore we're glorifying God even more. Paul giving a strong answer, God forbid. No way do we keep serving sin, we are dead to it. Later in the second half of chapter 6, Paul explains that we can serve which master we choose. We can serve sin or we can serve God. But for those that are truly in Christ, they are dead to sin and will only serve our Lord. Again, anticipating false conclusions about his teaching, Paul addresses the claim, well, if we are under grace and not law now, then we definitely can just keep on sinning. Once more, Paul responds, God forbid. And he can, continues to explain the role of a master and a servant. If we have a master, then we behave as a slave. And since sin is no longer our master, then we are a slave of Christ and righteousness. And as a slave of that, we must present ourselves to be so rather 
than continuing to purposely and willfully live in sin, serving sin. These are the statements Paul is making and the arguments one could expect to hear from such claims. So now, let's move on to our passage. Romans 7, 1 through 6. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth, for the man which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosened from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to one another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. <clears throat> Father God, uh, thank you so much for giving us another day, for giving us another time to gather, Lord God, to worship you and praise you, to dive into your word. Lord God, I, I just pray that your name is elevated today to the highest. Father God, that we remove all of ourselves, all of our needs and wants. Father God, that, that, it's, that it's all about you, that you are the focus. Lord God, I ask for the gift of teaching, understanding, and speaking today as we dive into your word. Lord God, I pray that our hearts and our minds are able to receive it and that your hand is on this message. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Notice Paul's first line. Brethren, for I speak to you who know the law. He is addressing a, spe a specific group of people here. Paul is well aware of the audience with whom he is writing to. This is a body of believers, but inside that, we still have Jewish brethren. Paul addresses them because they are going to be the ones that, quote, know the law. And he is aware of this fact and probably want to acknowledge that it is this group that has potential to be resistant to the claims he had previously made in chapter 6. When Paul said we are free from sin and that we are not under the Mosaic law anymore, but rather we are under grace, the apostle knows that this would put the converted Jew on edge. And they, of all people, would take offense to any claims that appeared disrespectful to the Old Testament law. Paul, who was a Jew, certainly felt this way about the law when he was persecuting Christians. So he can relate to the concern because he himself took offense to such claims he now finds himself making. He knows and fully understands the zeal that the Jew has for the law. Now, if you have ever done any studying of the Old Testament at all, it won't take you long to find the honor the love and the respect that is given to God's revealed law. The Old Testament Jew kept the law because they knew and understood the seriousness of God's commands. King Solomon shows this in Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let, let me sum it up, he says. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Man, that's a life study right there. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And in the Psalms, we're given many, many verses that praise and acknowledge the goodness of God's law. Just, I took a quick look at uh, Psalms 119. There's plenty there. 
Verse 1, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. 11, thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. Give me understanding and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all day. Thy word is true from the beginning. Every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. My tongue shall speak of thy word, for all thy commandments are righteous. So on and so on. We read the love for God's commandments, and that we pray to keep them. King David gives us really sort of a definitive proclamation of God's law in Psalm 19, 7 through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. We see how good and perfect God's law is. And of course, we shouldn't expect anything less from our Heavenly Father. However, when something so perfect and holy is placed in the hands of man, what always happens? We ruin it. We abuse it. We miss the point. You see, it was inevitable that God's law, when he gave it to man, that that would happen. God's law became so prevalent that the law itself had become an idol. In fact, it is still being taught from the Talmud in Judaism today. The Talmud is the commentary writings on the Torah, but they're held just as valid as Scripture themselves in Judaism. Rabbi Rabba writes, quote, If God created the evil inclination, he also created the Torah, the Old Testament, as its antidote. Rabbi Judah writes, The nature of the Holy One differs from the mortal men. When a man prescribes a remedy, it only benefits one individual but might injure another. But God gave the Torah, the Old Testament, to Israel as a source of healing for all. What I'm trying to show you today is that these kinds of teachings of God's law clearly contradict the divinely revealed law itself. We see the law became elevated so high in the minds of the Jews that the obedience to God's law became the means of salvation. And this is never what God intended with the law. Galatians 3, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The law was never given to save. It was never supposed to be the object of salvation. It was to act like a schoolmaster, guiding its student to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. It was always faith as a means to receive God's grace. The difference now is that Christ has come. We are no longer under the guidance of the schoolmaster, the law, but rather we're in Christ. Paul understood this better than most. Paul knew what it meant to be a Jew and to have such admiration for the law and placing faith in that law. Paul lived this way himself before his conversion. And I can't help but imagine the encounters Paul must have had with the Christians he hunted down. Did they preach the gospel to him as he had them killed? Did they preach to him about God's grace and you can receive it through faith alone as he was dragging them out of their homes? I believe they did, and they did it proudly. 
You see, these weren't 2020 politically correct Christians. These were early Christians who were literally being killed for their proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ. And they didn't backpedal or change their mind when facing most certain death. It is interesting to know that that's what Paul was involved in before his conversion. And now we find him on the side of the Christian he hunted down. Where once Paul was upholding the law and stomping out the early church, he is now part of the church himself, preaching to Jews who possibly had the same mindset as he did. And he is doing, as he's doing this, he's well aware that death is around the corner for preaching such heresies. Paul was the perfect man for the job. And this is why our passage begins this way. Paul has taken all that we have discussed thus far into consideration, and he addresses his brethren, those who know the law. So let's get back to our passage. I want you to be aware of the format Paul is using while he's making his case. We'll see that he opens up with an axiom, and then he'll move to an analogy to explain the truth. And then he's going to show us application, and then he's going to close with an affirmation. First, the axiom, which is it's a self-evident truth. Romans 7.1. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. Again, remember, Paul used the word brethren to sort of ease his Jewish brothers, but he's also talking about law. Now, here's Paul's ultimate point is law in general. Roman law, Greek law, even God-given biblical law. Paul's self-evident truth is in the question. Do you not know that law only has jurisdiction over a person as long as they live? Well, that's easy to understand, right? The law only applies and only can apply to the individual as long as that individual is alive. That's self-evident. We know that if a criminal commits a crime, no matter how big or evil the crime is, then his punishment can only be given if he is alive. Pretty easy. Hitler, as you all know, was never tried and prosecuted. The reason for this is because he was dead before that could happen. Paul wants us to understand that law is only binding to the living. To further explain this truth, Paul gives the analogy. In the next uh, couple verses, 2 and 3. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law. So that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Now, we must remember that these two verses are just an analogy. Just to continue the point Paul is making, these verses are not intended to defend or argue against the issue of divorce and the consequences of that. If you're searching for those verses, there's plenty throughout Scripture that will suffice, but these are not for that. So what is Paul trying to say here? Well, Paul just got done saying that the law is only binding on the living, so he gives us an example, such a scenario that we would all understand. Marriage. We all understand that marriage is for life, yes, and that the law of marriage is only binding as long as both parties are still alive. Paul reminds us being joined to another man while her husband is still alive makes the woman an adulteress, thus making her an offender against the law. But if that same woman is joined in a marriage to another man after her husband dies, 
then this is perfectly legal and acceptable. Therefore, a widow is perfectly and completely free from the law that previously bound her and her former husband. Paul just wants us to fully understand the relationship between man and the law. Like in his example, as long as you are alive to the law, then that law is binding. And there is nothing that can remove that covenant, but the only thing that can make it void is death. Once you have died, you are free from that binding law, just as in marriage. Now, I don't think I lost anyone at this point. I believe this truth is direct and easy to understand. But I think here in the next uh, few verses is where there could be some confusion. Because you might be thinking to yourself, okay, I get it, in marriage, if one dies, then the marriage covenant is finished, and it's not binding anymore. But how can we be dead to the law if we're still living? Because this is Paul's point, and it has been for a while now, that we are dead to sin, dead to law, and that it is not our master anymore. But how is this possible if we haven't died yet? Thanks for asking, Harvest, I'll tell you. So as my best friend Christopher Douglas would ask, he's always asking this, what is the application Right? How does this apply to the Christian in their life? If Paul is right, and we are now dead to the law, then how is that possible? What is the application of such a substantial claim? And we read in verses 4 and 5, Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Paul, again, addressing even more personally now by saying, my brethren, instead of brethren, right? He's just, he's, he's digging into that. He's being personal as he explains how this is possible. Well, just like how the death of a husband frees the woman from, from that marriage uh, covenant, Paul now declares you, the Christian, were made to die to the law, this being the Mosaic law. Paul is telling us that the Christian is now dead to that law. And it's a really interesting phrase there, the, the um, R become dead. It's translated to just one word, theranatao. I'm not Greek, that might be, might be wrong. It's a passive verb, and it means by death to be liberated from the bond of anything, literally to be made dead in relation to something. Now, that doesn't mean the Christian physically died, right? To be free from the law, but rather they are become dead by the divine act of God in response to putting faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We know the law was never a means to save, but rather the law only has the power to condemn man to death for their sin. In the previous chapter 6, Paul has already told us that faith in Jesus Christ brings death to and freedom from sin. But now he's also declaring that this same faith in Christ also brings death to the law and freedom from the law's penalty, death. Amen. But how does this happen? What makes this possible? Paul tells us through the body of Christ. It is because he suffered the penalty of death on the behalf of his church that we are freed from the relationship to law just as his analogy stated to begin with. Like the widow who is now freed from her relationship to, the, to her former husband, we too are dead 
to the law and are freed to be joined to another husband, as it were, to Jesus Christ. Because of what he did and suffered for us, we are now able to be made widows to the law and are free to enter into another relationship with our Lord, making us completely free from the previous relationship to law and its penalty. You see, salvation brings a total change of spiritual relationship, just the way a remarriage after a death brings a change to the marital relationship. We are no longer married to the law, but we are married to Jesus Christ, the divine bridegroom of his church. You know, hopefully you see by now uh, sort of the underlying emphasis of, of Romans is that salvation produces a total transformation. So we have the how part of the question answered. How we are made dead to the law is by Christ's death so that we could be his bride. But man, what about that application, right? Wherefore, my brethren, ye also become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that ye should bring fruit unto God. The reason we are joined to Christ is that we should bring forth fruit unto God. I think Galatians sums this up good. Galatians 2, 19 through 20. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ live in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for, for me. In short, the transformed life will produce fruit for God. That is what you have with Christ, a transformed life. Prior to that, in the old life of the unbeliever, Paul gives us four things you will find to be true in a person's life without Christ. In verse 5, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. The first thing you get is they were in the flesh. Were. They were in the flesh. If you are in Christ, you are not in the flesh anymore. Whereas the unredeemed, unregenerate person can only operate in the way the flesh knows how to, in its natural, sinful, fallen state. Second, the believer's old life was characterized by the motions of sins. These are those impulses, those internal uh, cravings to think and perform evil that is generated in the flesh. And this is an ongoing suffering state, yet they continue to partake in evil thoughts and actions. Third, their old lives are also characterized by their sinful motions being by the law. Now, if you heard what I just said, you should be asking yourself, hold on, how could sin be by the law? What is Paul saying there? He is talking about our arousal for sin by the law. Paul is saying that our nature is so sinful, and since our hearts have an evil inclination, all we do is seek sin. It is because the law, declaring what is wrong, it also arouses evil in the unregenerate person because of his nature. His rebellious nature makes him want to do the very things he learns are forbidden to do. Lastly, number four, the believer's old life is characterized by the work in their members to bring forth fruit unto death. Paul says that the unregenerate person uses all of the body 
everything they are made of to work, powerfully to work, to follow their passion of sin, only to produce the fruit of the ultimate and eternal judgment, death. When you compare the characteristics of the lost man to those of the saved man, you find vast differences. The lost man is in the flesh. He serves the flesh. He is in this constant state of internal suffering and lusting after evil thoughts and actions. He's aroused by the very things he is told not to partake in. He uses his entire being, his whole existence, to chase his sinful passions. And he will do it with great zeal and only to do nothing but produce fruit of death. But when you look at the person who is in Christ, you will not find that at all. It's impossible to find such things. The saved person is free from the bondage of sin and serves Christ instead of himself. The saved will grow a righteous hatred for sin. The saved will no longer live to produce fruit of death, but instead will produce fruit of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you today, what kind of fruit are you producing? Are you producing fruit at all? You see, when we're told there is, without a doubt, a transformation of the person who trusts Christ, and that there are evidences of this transformation, i got to be honest with you, it concerns me. It concerns me because, for one, it immediately makes me take a look at myself, and then it makes me wonder about the church. Not local church, I mean the church. 2 Corinthians 13.5, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. We are told in Scripture to continuously examine ourselves. Don't ever get to a point that you convince yourself that you're producing enough fruit, that you've reached full sanctification. That verse hit me in the gut. There's a reason we are told to do this. Can we not be self-deceived? Could we not think that we are in Christ when that is the furthest thing from the truth? And I can't measure your heart. Nobody can do that. Only God knows. But if somebody is actually in Christ, they will be transformed, and we will see spiritual fruit, not fruit of death. Now, in no way what I'm about to say is a true measure of somebody's heart. But if we were told of the differences in a Christian's life, then shouldn't we be able to see them in some form? Here's my point. I, I wanted some statistics. Christian statistics, to be more specific. I was curious as to the population of our country. Not the world. I just wanted to... Let's start here in the, the U.S. When you look that up, right now, we're so close to this number, I'm just going to bump it a little bit and say 330 million people. That's the population right now. The next thing I wanted to know, how many of them is Christian? When you look that up, you find, according to statistics in the U.S. right now, 70% of the population is Christian. And that concerned me immediately. And if you don't know why, let me explain. Now, I just randomly picked up my next topic to search, so don't think I'm up here shoving an agenda down your throat. But the next topic I wanted to know was of the percentage was how much of the U.S. population supports abortion. The percentage for the support of abortion in most or all cases is 53%. You see the problem? How in the world do we have 70% of population is Christian? Yet we have 
supporting abortion. Something is wrong. Now, what is happening, in my opinion, is we have people who are claiming to be Christian, yet their hearts are serving something entirely different than our Lord that I adore. I, and I get it. Look, it's probably unfair to even use this statistic because of age, how many people are actually Christian. I get all that. But my point is, if we were actually 70% Christian in this nation, and that 70% is transformed, producing fruit, we wouldn't have a problem with abortion. If that percent was true, we wouldn't have a problem defining marriage. We wouldn't have a problem defining gender, yet this is not what we're seeing at all. So I looked up my next number, and this one angered me a little bit more. I wanted to know the percentage of atheists in the population. The population of atheists was as low as 3%, but I did see it up to 10, so let's be generous and say 10%. We have 10% of people producing more fruit than the 70% that desperately need to be. 10% of the the population is doing way more than the 70, and they're way louder too. Have you noticed that? Every day I see it. Social media, my goodness. People are vocal about how much they hate God, how you're an idiot if you believe in God, how the Bible is the most evil, disgusting book ever written, and whoever believes in a murdering, hateful, insecure, sadistic God like that is a fool. They're open about it, not ashamed. And when you look to see what is the 70% of Christians saying in response, nothing. It's almost complete silence, as if we don't have a single thing to say in response. At best, at best, the only thing I see once in a while is your very easy, very comfortable, ooey-gooey, inspirational quote that says something like, God loves everybody. And look, this isn't easy to talk about because I'm confessing in front of you today, I'm in this camp as well of being too quiet. I examine myself and I am extremely disappointed with how quiet I am on social media in my personal life. But we must remember this book is our sword. It can cut clear to the heart of man. Don't waste time with being PC with the inspirational quotes. We have to engage with the God haters. That's what they are. An inspirational quote isn't going to divide anyone. All we are going to do is be polite and then send them on their way to hell. Man, hit them with stuff. Like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going to make a friend when you put something like that. But we need the truth out there. We have to present them with the truth. Every day we have Christ rejectors openly mocking him and what he did. They're dragging our Lord and Savior through the mud, and we stand by unresponsive. Have we lost our minds? If I walked up to you, who can I pick on? Derek, what I'm about to say, clearly I would never say. You know that. And it's biblical language, so if you get your feelings hurt, it's used in the Bible. If I walked up to you and I said, your wife is a prostitute, you would not be quiet. You wouldn't say, 
well, she's all love. You wouldn't say, well, that's not the truth, but I don't want to shove that down your throat. I want you to find the truth on your own. You wouldn't say that. You would say, Joseph, that is my bride you're talking about. You better watch the stupid next words out of your mouth. Fair? This, it reminds me of this story. When I was younger, um, we had a dog. His name was Frisky. Man, I know everyone says it, but this was the best dog that ever lived. Loyal, super friendly, followed you everywhere. And we didn't know he was capable of this because he was always friendly. He didn't show aggression. But one time, uh, my older brother was wrestling with a neighborhood kid. And the neighborhood kid started overtaking him. He was a little bit bigger. And jokingly, my older brother started to scream, right? He, he was joking. It wasn't serious. And Frisky snapped, went over to the other kid and put his jaws around his leg, as if to say, no, you crossed the line. And that's what a loyal dog does for his master. Right? No surprise. That's what they do. We are nothing but cowards if we sit by while the world attacks our master and we won't even make a whimper of a bark. When we see our God attacked, we must engage. When we see Christ mocked, we must engage. When we see his word being twisted and ripped apart and mishandled, we must absolutely engage and instantly. Don't think that being a Christian means being weak and inactive. We are not to sit on the sidelines doing nothing. James 4.17, There to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. We're free, but you're accountable too. If you know something should be done and you sit by and do nothing, that is a sin. Now, like I said, this whole argument using statistics might be unfair. I'll, I'll admit that. We don't know the true numbers. We don't know the individual. But what about you? Are you producing any fruit? Do you even know what real fruit looks like? You see, we tend to humanize everything so that we can measure it and say that fruit is, I don't know, our good deeds, our works. But in Luke 6, Jesus talks about that. He addressed doing good to those uh, who do good to you. He says, big deal, even sinners do that. Sinners can do good deeds. So again, our righteousness is a filthy rag. And to sum it up even better, explaining the works of the flesh, take a look at Galatians 5, 19, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You see now why Paul says he puts no confidence in the flesh. And neither should we. Don't count anything you do as proofs. Even the fact that you come to church, that is not your salvation. I, and I use that example every time, I know, but I think repetition's good. I think repetition's good. I think, no, two's enough. Um, nothing we can do justifies us. The lost can come to church every Sunday. They can come in here, they can learn the culture, 
the lingo. They can blend right in. They can even read and memorize scripture. That doesn't mean anything. They might even take the act so far and start filling the pulpit. But that doesn't mean anything either. If you don't believe me, get online. Just go to any major news website. I see it all the time. Pastor. Pastor. Big letters. Pastor. Leaves the church because he's an atheist now. Pastor. Asked to step down because he's embezzling money from his own church. Pastor. Sent to prison because he was caught in a relationship with an underage student. It's not supposed to be this way. Are we producing fruit? Real, genuine fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Notice how all of those are internal. Notice how they are not of the flesh. These are from the Spirit, who we need to be on our knees begging to receive them. We cannot produce this fruit from the flesh. Those of you that didn't know me seven years ago, but I'll tell you right now, seven years ago, I could not will my flesh to be long-suffering. I could not will my flesh to be temperance, to have self-control. That is not what my flesh wanted. I wanted to serve me. None of that is in the flesh. It's from the Spirit, and you can only receive that if you are in Christ. There is no other way. Whew, let's get back to the passage. So, remember Paul's format there was the beginning axiom then the analogy then the application which leaves us with the affirmation we'll conclude with the last verse 6 but now we are delivered from the law that being dead wherein we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter Paul reminds us because we are dead to the law through Christ's death we are fully delivered from that law meaning we are completely, in every way, delivered from law and its penalty that we fully deserve. In the ultimate sense, we are totally free. Now, Paul has spent the previous chapter making it perfectly clear that this freedom we now have does not mean we are free to keep sinning just because we are under grace. Remember, nobody can serve two masters but we are free from its bondage. Amen. Not that this is not all this freedom does. Remember, I, I think uh, as Christians, we focus on the freedom from sin. Like, I think we focus on that part, and then we kind of celebrate, and then we move on too quickly. That freedom from sin and its punishment is amazing. Praise God to the highest. But there is so much more to that freedom that we get from this release. You see, now that we are no longer in bondage to sin, we have the freedom to do what is righteous. We have the freedom to be a child of God. We have the freedom to have his word dwell in our hearts. We have a freedom to serve Christ. We have a freedom to enter into a relationship with God that has been fully reconciled and dissolved of the wrath we had coming. There is so much freedom involved in this new marriage, and we need to fully embrace that. Paul concludes this text by saying, we get to serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldest, oldness of the letter. Paul is telling us that serving the spirit in our newness instead of the oldness of the letter is a necessary fruit of redemption 
not an option. Yes, the law is still very important to the Christian. But as believers, we are now dead to the law as far as its demands and condemnations are concerned. However, it is because we are now new in the spirit, we find ourselves free to love and serve God's law with a new, regenerate, joyous heart. Dear friends, have you received that heart? Do you find joy in keeping our Lord's word? Have you been freed from the law? If not, I highly encourage you to go to him today. Man, ask for that. Go to the one who died for you so that you could be free from the law and its penalty. Go to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your law, for your perfect, good law. Lord God, we thank you so much for sending your son to die and to pay for our penalty. Yes, Lord God, we, we admit and acknowledge that law is perfect, but we also admit there is no way we could keep that as much as we tried or as much as we fool ourselves and think that we can. And Lord God, we acknowledge that it's not the law that saves us. It just reveals how bad we are, Lord God. And it reveals how good you are. Again, we thank you so much for it. We thank you for Jesus Christ dying in our place so that we could be set free from that. And as if that's not enough, Lord God, we get to be in a relationship with your son. Thank you so much for that. Lord God, I, I pray that you continue to work on our hearts. God, give us the strength and the know-how to keep your word, Lord God. Continue to work on us so that we may serve you and glorify you. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.